This is an ABC podcast. Lock the doors. That's climate action now. This Prime Minister does not like scrutiny. The Labor Party is clearly embarrassed. This is a Prime Minister who cannot stand up for integrity. How good is Australia? Here, here. Those opposite are all smear and no idea. Welcome to the party room. I'm Fran Kelly from RN Breakfast. And I'm Patricia Carvellis from RN Drive. Sorry, I sound a little sniffly. I've had a bit of a cold. Plus one you? for the season. I'll, I'll look, I'll be right. But yeah, Coronavirus, a, you've got a mask? Uh, yes, I've been germ killing. It's just a little cold, but I might sound a bit sniffly, so apologies. Look, Fran, no parliament this week, but there's still lots happening nevertheless. Politics never sleeps, PK. And in this country in the past decade, I think we can declare today that climate politics in particular never stops rolling. Last week, you recall the government, we got the news, was working on its 2050 target ahead of the Global Climate Conference. That's the conference that's the follow-up to the Paris Agreement. All nations will get together in Glasgow at the end of the year and basically announce their increased ambition, how we're going to get to the ambition of, you know, keeping global warming to one and a half degrees. That's the plan. Then what we got this week, we're suddenly hearing talk of a technology investment target. So we're not sure what it is, but the word, according to the Oz, was that the government believes we can take to Glasgow rather than taking a zero emissions goal by 2050 because that just gets attacked attacked, attacked, we can actually rock up to Glasgow and say, well, we've got a pathway to get us there. It's a technology roadmap. This is what it is, rather than actually utter the words, we have a goal for zero emissions. I think that's the plan. That's the plan. It sounds like a thought bubble at this stage to me, not much of a plan. Yes, a technology target, but ultimately... What does the target work towards? These are the questions that still haven't been answered. What are the reductions it works towards? You can't just have technology for the sake of technology if you don't have a pathway that you're actually going towards. So they have to still be linked. So I think this is the way the government's been trying to avoid committing to zero net emissions by 2050 because it will cause eruption and a split in its party room. But ultimately, a target needs to lead to something. You don't just have yes. a target that doesn't do anything. Well, that's right. I mean, we're going to have a roadmap, but a roadmap has to have a destination. Now, I spoke to Mike Cannon-Brooks from Atlassian. He's a you know big climate change activist, um, putting often his technology and his money where his mouth is, I have to say. And he says, look, we've already got the technology. What we need to know is where we're trying to go. Like I said before, we're going to have a technology roadmap, but a roadmap has to have a destination. Mike Cannon-Brooks and others, the BCA this week, and plenty of other people say that destination is zero emissions by 2050, but it seems the government can't utter that goal. So it's going to go to Glasgow, I'm not sure, with what, and say, well, here's our technology roadmap for lowering emissions without stating the ambition of zero by 2050. Is that how you understand it? I think so. Uh, It seems to me a pretty difficult thing to try and argue for in an international setting. I don't know how you do that. I think it solves perhaps a party room issue for the Prime Minister and you can look at some evidence here. He's got some of the people who've been agitating for more action on climate change, people like Tim Wilson and others saying that they feel like a technology target or a roadmap is a good way forward. So 
he's trying to appease those people, but equally and give them something to sell, right, in those electorates where uh, where people are agitating for more action yeah. on climate change, but at the same time not freak out the forces who say do not commit to zero net emissions by 2050 or, or anything too ambitious. But again, I don't. I think at this stage it's deeply rhetorical until you get sort of meat on the bones because you know, at some stage, as you've said, you're going to have to actually put detail into that. And when the detail arrives, I think you still have the same political problem. Well, the details arrive, is supposed to arrive soon. I mean, at the press club last month, the Prime Minister spoke about a technology roadmap. To guide Australia's future technology investments, the government will next month release for consultation a new technology roadmap, charting the way forward in areas such as hydrogen, solar and batteries, transmission and networks, large-scale energy storage and carbon catcher and storage. So our climate action agenda is a practical one. It goes beyond targets and summits and it's driven by technology, not taxation. Now, it's all very well to manage the politics of this and the internal politics of this we know are on display again and they're wicked and they're deep set and it's hard to see a way around them and it's already knocked off, this whole issue has knocked off so many Prime Ministers now I've lost count. I think what you're saying, PK, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more with Peter Harcher, our guest this morning, is this a, an actual plan, this technology target, or is it just a dodge, a diversion to get the PM out of having to talk about a zero emissions goal with his party room? Now, another thing that really I think was quite significant this week, uh, Fran, is Anthony Albanese delivered one of his headlands speeches, and this one was about older Australians. He outlined his fourth kind of plan, and this was about positive ageing. It was focused on a couple of different areas, but superannuation, I think, was very key here. He's setting up a fight with the government. The government is split. Uh, I'm not saying down the middle, but split uh, or definitely split on this issue of the superannuation guarantee increase, which is legislated. And he's trying to say that Labor is the party that believes in this going up and that Labor is going to fight for this. I do think that this is smart politics from Anthony Albanese because superannuation is one of those signature issues for Labor or signature policies, just like mm. Medicare. He wants to fight for it and argue that he's the one that is interested in trying to establish that Australians as they age are well looked after, whereas the government is internally divided on this. But there wasn't really anything significant or new in it, but it does give you some markers of where he plans to put himself in this debate. Yeah, two things about that. I think Anthony Albanese has decided that this government is vulnerable on its ageing strategy, on older Australians, on talking to older Australians. It's normally been a pretty positive and supportive cohort for the government. But right now, Anthony Albanese thinks the government's just not doing enough and it's not talking enough to this group about how to get jobs for them, how to get you know employment opportunities for them as they age. We've had the, the whole Royal Commission into Aged Care, which has found Australia's policy wanting big time and I think it can be argued the government still isn't responding quickly enough and there's a huge amount of money that is going to be required to address the problems that the Royal Commission is pointing out. How on earth is the government going to deliver that in the context of its surplus strategy? But, you know, I, I do know that the Prime Minister understands that once they got through drought, aged care was a, a, a big spend that the government was going to have to come up with. Um, 
but there's a lot of pressures on that budget at the moment. That's the first thing. In terms of superannuation, yes, Labor is the architect of this policy. Generally, I think it's been very popular as people age and retire and see they've got money in their super accounts. But there is a growing sort of collective of groups on the other side saying, well, with wages growth so low, superannuation is not fair because it means, you know, they're not going to be given pay rises and people need money in their pocket now. There is an argument for that and the Grattan Institute, ACOS is on board with that too at the moment. So there's forces rallying against Labor, but I think there's also an argument counter to that, which is, well, already people aren't getting wage increases. The wages haven't been growing for a few years now and they're not getting increases in their super guarantee either. So you may as well give them one or the other. Um, That's Labor's policy on the other side. In general terms, $3 trillion in our super scheme, thanks to Labor's policy under the Keating government. In general terms, I think it's positively regarded by most. Yeah, I think so. But it's an interesting one that Labor wants to have a fight over. And Anthony Albanese in that speech did take on those groups, the ones that are traditional friends and allies, right? ACOS of saying that essentially, you know, they're playing into the hands of the coalition and essentially warning them not to play into the hands of the coalition. Now, the coalition's counter-argument, and I interviewed Jane Hume, who was the Assistant Minister for Superannuation, is you can't have a free lunch. I think that's the kind of language they're using. You can't have both. So, yes, they say we're going to stick to the legislated increase, but people have to know that they may have to forfeit wage rises as a result. It seems that they're not enthusiastic barrackers of the legislated increase, Fran. They might say they're I for it. I think that's it. fair to say. They say it's guaranteed in legislation, but then they say, but we don't like it, don't they? Well, yeah. So it, it begs the question, if you don't like it, why are you doing it? Mm. Because you're not enthusiastic about it. I think it's a problematic position, personally. They're talking it down, but they're saying they're going to do it. Yeah. Uh, The government's got this whole retirement income system review going on, which is where this discussion may sort of come to a head, really, depending on the recommendations of that. So that might give them some more ammunition for winding it back. It's at nine and a half percent, I think, at the moment. Isn't it about to move to 10 percent soon or nine and three quarters? I'm a bit fuzzy on that, but it's moving upwards slowly in increments. I've got a feeling that we might end up ultimately with maybe even Labor supporting something less than 12%. That's just a hunch, nothing more. But, um, you know, certainly with the number of voices railing against it now and citing some unfairness built into the, the tax concessions that people get out of super, which means wealthy people can put a lot in and get a lot of tax concessions, that maybe we could settle for something less than 12%. Mm, I suppose it, we will see, but I feel like he was pretty strong on it. I don't know. It would be hard to depart from that position. Before we get to our guest, I want to quickly touch on a very huge story this week. And, and Coles and Target have become the latest well-known brands to admit to underpaying workers. This has been a story that's been bubbling along for a long time, the broader issue of underpayment of workers. Or the what. list is long now. Even it, the ABC had to admit that it underpaid a lot of people more than $20 million worth, I think. It's incredible, right? It's clearly a what huge is wrong? issue. Yeah, well, that's, <laughs> you've just nailed it. Like, what is actually wrong? How could this be so widespread? I reckon the government is... Um, been pretty smart on this one. Yes, I acknowledge, which is a Labor critique, it's been slow, but now it seems to be onto it. So this week, and it was coincidental that the Attorney General, who's also the Industrial Relations Minister, Christian Porter, released some discussion papers, some ideas about where they want to go on this. Um, And essentially, bosses who do underpay workers, 
could be forced to name and shame themselves with public signs even admitting their wage theft um, on, you know, the windows of their public businesses. Public signs? What, outside the office works? Yeah, essentially. <laughs> um, businesses who don't prevent wage underpayment, they might be banned from hiring migrant workers for a period of time. Company directors could be disqualified from holding office. These are the sorts of civil penalties they're looking at. And they're also going to be introducing legislation to criminalise the worst cases of wage theft. And that's actually in coming weeks, the minister told me. In that case, it's going to be a very high bar, though, I've got to say, Fran, to actually prove it. You've got to prove intent. I think the test is going to be quite hard. I'm not convinced cases like Woolies will actually fit into that, but the other civil penalties could. And so this is about the government saying they take it seriously. If you look at some of the arguments being made by the employers... One of the arguments is that perhaps the even the system itself is too complicated. Yeah, it's they go to the award system. Yeah, don't they, they go. It's so complicated; it's hard to do. I reckon the government has struck the right tone on this. Christian Porter says yes. It, it might be complicated, but they don't seem very, you know, to have a hard time with other things when it yeah. suits them. So he actually has put the blame on them and said they're not investing in doing this and they should take the blame. And he's taken a very hard line. I think it's politically pretty smart and savvy of the government to do that because this is a bread and butter issue for voters. They may have actually experienced underpayment. I think the government taking it seriously is smart politics. Hey, PK, I think our guest is here. Shall we bring him in? Let's do it. Peter Harcher, political editor and international editor at the Sydney Morning Herald. Welcome to the party room. Thank you, Patricia. Yep, Peter, it's great to have you here. Cracked a pale ale in your honour. Thank you very much. bat, you know. This time of year. The hipster drink, we love it. Um, Peter, earlier PK and I have been talking about the idea of this technology investment target, which got a run in the Oz. Uh, clearly not a surprise to the government that it was out there, obviously, a.k.a. a leak. But then the Prime Minister himself described it as speculative reporting. He didn't deny it, though. He went on to talk about the importance of technology as the solution technology, not taxation. What do we mean by this technology investment target or roadmap? Have you got any idea of that? Well, in the terms that Scott Morrison is presenting it, and I'd point out that uh, if this was a trial balloon that he was setting up to, to get responses that he hasn't got any denunciations yet, not clearly anyway, out of the quarter that he's most worried about, which is uh, the National Party and his own conservative rump, if I may use that expression. What it is, though, what he's presenting is a Rorsach test. Uh, he wants people to read into this what they want. So when you know the Labor Party and the Greens see it, they say, this is about investment in renewable technology. That's great. When Barnaby Joyce sees it, he says, oh, this is about nuclear technology. That's great. And this or is clean coal. A, and this is about hilly coal plants, right? This is exactly what Morrison wants because he's trying to conduct a very difficult tiptoeing away from uh, the settled position of the coalition on climate change and energy policy. And in the case of energy policy, the settled position is to have no position. He's delicately trying to tiptoe away from that uh, to the new exigency that's been established by public opinion after the bushfire, drought, floods crisis. And he, he knows that he must get there and he will get there uh, by the next election. That's the intention. But he's trying to do it so slowly that he doesn't provoke an insurrection among the Nats and his own Conservatives. Okay, so the question I put to PK just earlier was, is this technology roadmap that we're yet to get but we'll get soon or this technology investment target, is it an actual policy or is it a dodge, a political dodge? Uh, it could be either. 
we live in hope that it'll be an actual policy, but Morrison does know, does understand and has started the movement to actually change policy on this and to get active on investment. Uh, and look, you know, it's the only sensible thing to do. It's been obvious for a couple of years now that the Paris and uh, any future plausible carbon emissions targets internationally are not going to be enough to prevent the world warming to beyond 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius. So technology is the answer. Of course it is. It is, it is clearly the only plausible way of dealing with this problem. And now, you know, we have to be grateful that Morrison uh, is moving for the sake of the country's industrial future as well as the sake of its emissions future and the state of the planet. Whether it's a plan or a dodge, mm. we'll find out. But I think it's more likely to be at least the beginnings of a plan. But again, he doesn't want to frighten the horses on this. So, for example, you remember a couple of weeks ago he announced a bilateral deal with the New South Wales government, with Gladys Berejiklian. Mm. Yes, on gas. To, yeah, to invest $2 billion plus in technology and uh, on energy and climate change. In Scott Morrison's words, this was an emphasis on increasing gas supplies. But if you look at the agreement of the detail, it's largely about renewable energy. So this is a question of trying to do that, you know, to, to move so slowly and gingerly and carefully and with a bit of subterfuge on the propaganda and the emphasis to not bring on an insurrection in the process. It's tricky. Peter, just before we leave this, though, that sort of quick step you're talking about there, is it going to come with necessarily a big investment from government? You talked about the, the agreement with New South Wales. That had investment in transmission for us, for, for starters. Mm. And the transmission's a big problem for getting the renewable energy or the new clean technology into the current grid that needs mm. upgrading. Is it going to necessarily come this technology roadmap when we get it with a big investment from government or is it all about extracting investment from the private sector? Well, for a start, I wouldn't call it a quick step so much as a slow waltz. Um, <laughs> but but there, I suspect there will be federal investment. But the thing is that it's not actually the critical point. The world is awash in surplus capital, estimated $50 trillion US dollars. Investors just want uh, decent returns and enough certainty to invest. If the federal government can give them a policy framework, the investment will flow. Peter, let's put your Sydney Morning Herald international editor hat on for a moment. Your recent op-ed calls out the Chinese government for creating the coronavirus emergency through food safety standards that are too poor while shifting the blame away from them and President Xi's efforts to control the message, which, of course, they've been quite obsessed with. And we've been, obviously, as a country, managing the fallout in quite, you've got to say, extreme measures. Some have described them as draconian. What do you make of our response? But also, obviously, as you've been saying in your column, the Chinese government's handling of this. Well, first of all, hats off to the Chinese government for uh, brilliant use of tactics and what they call discourse management. Mm. It, it, it really is brilliant because they've taken this dreadful epidemic that they've visited upon the planet and they're turning it into a tool of pressure against Australia. And there is no pushback uh, from any leader or public official in Australia. Contrast that, for example, yesterday, uh, Russia announced a travel ban on China. Now, it's a bit different to the Australian one because the Australian one doesn't uh, specifically say Chinese citizens. In fact, Chinese citizens are welcome to come into the country still as long as they've not been in China or come through China in the previous 14 days. Russia said no 
Chinese citizens or subjects will enter our country. They'd already closed the land border. Now they've closed the air border. Now, that was yesterday. What's the response from the Chinese government to Russia's decision to take an even tougher ban on Chinese citizens than we have? Not a peep. Very conciliatory because the Chinese know it doesn't work with the Russians, so don't, don't try it. But they're, they're bunging it on with us because they know they're pushing on an open door and we just cop it. Right, so because those tensions are already there and the relationship is already, I would say, quite broken, Testy. it works here. Yeah, that's right. Look, this is a, a, a serious achievement, I think, by the Chinese government, what they've pulled off with Australia. Over several decades, not a recent thing, they've trained us into a position, I've called it the preemptive kowtow, but it's essentially a fe- <laughs> it's essentially a fearfulness in our approach to China, always waiting for the Chinese government to get angry at us about something or another and tiptoeing around it to try and avoid that. Peter Varghese, the former head of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, now the Chancellor of Queensland University, uh, has, has, has spelled it out very clearly uh, to say that this is simply their way um, of pressuring us, knowing that uh, we have become so trade-dependent on the Chinese government and so inculcated to, to fearing an angry response that we will do, do as they wish or, at the very least, uh, be, su- be submissive. But, Peter, to be fair, Australia's not the only one who's not slapping China around the chops, is it? I mean, no, not a lot of other countries are being very critical of China. Isn't that, I thought, because the world was just trying to keep China open and accountable because that's how we're going to find some kind of solution to this? Yes, you can understand uh, the Australian reaction up to a point, and that is that... Nobody in the federal or state or any level of government wants to jeopardise what cooperation they've been getting from the Chinese government, either to get flights out of China or to provide information out of China. So they are uh, very anxious to try and preserve that cooperation. Perfectly understandable. But the supine nature uh, and the long-term nature of Australia's willingness to accept unfair and unreasonable and just frankly outrageous claims that Australia is racist in shutting out China. I mean, so have they called the Singaporean government or the Vietnamese government or the Japanese government racist for shutting out Chinese? No, but all those countries have banned Chinese Mm. visitors during this period. This is simply a push on us because they know it works and that's what they're doing. Let's talk more about the travel ban in terms of its economic impact and it's been extended. We're recording this on a Thursday morning. It could be extended again over the weekend. That's mm. entirely possible and actually likely, I would say. Mm. So we obviously have a huge impact in terms of Chinese students at our universities. We don't have Chinese people generally on holiday here. It's had a huge impact, my understanding is, on um, or the broader economy, but also the the budget and therefore potentially the promised budget surplus, Peter, Mm. Uh, the government's been, uh, well, they haven't quite gone there yet, but are they going to soften us up to abandon their promise? Well, you're right. They've just sort of hinted that it's now negotiable where in the past it wasn't. The Reserve Bank and the IMF have both now said that the combined hit of the bushfires plus uh, the coronavirus will knock about half a percentage point off Australia's anticipated growth this year. That's about a quarter of all economic growth that was expected. Uh, and that's a pretty early estimate. We are still seeing the ripple effects of the coronavirus unfold around the world. Yes, More this countries... could get much bigger, I mean, in yes. terms of even our iron ore exports and all of that. This could start affecting 
the whole economy for a much longer term. Yes, that, that's exactly right. And we should expect... So decisions are being made. You see them in the news every day. And more countries are banning Chinese visit, visitors every day, I should add, uh, as well as companies cutting their supply lines. The visible stuff is, you know, university students, tourists, the casino system... But less visible LPG prices have collapsed by 62% uh, in the last week, for, for example. That, that hits our exporters. So the, f- the first point to make is that, yes, the effect is real and probably going to be bigger than currently estimated. Second, that the Australian government is really living in denial. Uh, in my view, the real equity that you've got to protect here is confidence. Once confidence uh, fails, confidence is already under stress. Once it collapses, you can't recover it. It's gone. It doesn't matter what the government does. People uh, will be very slow to recover confidence. In my view, the government should be getting ahead of this crisis in a way it failed to get ahead of the bushfire crisis and be bringing forward stuff like the investment uh, incentives that they were looking to bring down in the in the May budget and bring it down now, pre-announce it. It doesn't have to be effective this week, but take some measures. Maybe bring forward some income tax cuts. Bring forward measures that they've already got in the works. Do it now. Keep confidence up. Uh, and assist the country through but this. there goes the surplus. And what does that do to confidence? The It will be a very lame uh, uh, talking point in the middle of a recession to talk about how they've tried really hard to keep the surplus. They cannot keep the surplus and keep the economy running at the same time. The good news out of all this is that looking six or 12 months ahead, what's the Chinese economy going to do? It's, it's already been slowing. It's in trouble. Xi Jinping will want a strong recovery. Based on all our knowledge of Chinese past uh, practice, they will have a big fiscal package. They will have a major stimulus by the end of this year. They've already started some monetary measures, but there'll be a big fiscal bounce out of this, and that will bounce the Chinese economy, the Australian economy, and much of the world economy out of this. We can't exactly predict that because they haven't done it yet. We don't know the size Mm. of it or the shape of it. But But our iron ore usually benefits from that. And other exports. That's the likely trajectory. So having a sharp sort of V-shaped decline and on the other side of it, I imagine, uh, towards the end of the year, earlier next year, we will probably get a reasonably sharp uplift. In terms of Labor's response, because in terms of a a surplus, there's huge politics in all of this, obviously. For Josh Frydenberg, this is a thing that he he promised to deliver and and it it really will mark him as a treasurer. He doesn't want to go down the Wayne Swan road of saying you'll deliver something and then not delivering it. Mm. How does Labor respond? Because the things that you've just suggested are things that Labor thinks should happen broadly, and yet equally they'll want to get as much political bang for the government abandoning this promise as they can. In fact, I interviewed Tanya Plibersek this week and I thought she gave the biggest indication of where the politics might go, where she said the government can't blame coronavirus and the bushfires for not delivering a surplus. They were heading in this direction anyway. That would be an excuse. So that's sort of some of the political rhetoric they may use. Mm. Where, where do they go? Well, Labor's sort of afraid of their own shadow at the moment. They don't know what their position is on anything, really, do they? I think that's probably their best line of attack is to continue that general uh, line, which is that everything that the government does is inadequate, uh, whether it's the surplus, whether it's the response to the downturn, just to keep up that line. Because there will be the government will have to offer some form of stimulus eventually. I mean, for goodness sake... How many years can the Reserve Bank governor be demanding the government? <laughs> please, to, please, please. Potentially you know, forever. But, yeah. Well, Jim Chalmers, though, has looking. already been making that point again and again. It's already in the doldrums. You've already been mismanaging it now this. But I think he's trying to massage it by saying, well, here's what you could do. So 
trying to sound positive in against that negativity. I'm not sure mm. that's working for them. And surely the government's going to have enough cover with the f- summer we've had mm. and the coronavirus to be able to, to massage this message, isn't it? Yeah, I think if you look ahead, the fundamental thing that's coming up is the reality of an economic slowdown, just as there was this little reality called a, a major national bushfire disaster in Australia. The government just likes to put itself in denial. There's no crisis big enough or urgent enough that this government can't find a way to ignore it. The bushfire crisis was extraordinary. The danger is that they repeat that sort of denial again. The reality coming down the track is an economic slowdown. There's no question. The only question is the dimension and the duration. The government can affect that, but whatever the talking points are from either side, it will not change that reality And everything else from the government, if they fail to deal with it adequately, will be just excuse-making. And Labor, I mean, that Labor can get vocal and find whatever the most useful line is then, but it's likely to be whatever the government does is inadequate. Peter Harcher, you've been such a great guest. Thanks so much for coming in. Always happy now I can finish my pale ale. (laughs) That's terrific, Peter. Come on, don't pretend you've only had the one. (laughs) Well, it's pretty early in the morning. It's only been one and a half. (laughs) See you, Peter. See you. Thanks, guys. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. I'm pleased too because Velda has written a question and she's done it in the best way possible. A five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Velda, we love your work. Thank you for giving us five stars. We love you, Velda. We like all of the stars. And what a great opportunity for me to plug that you can also review and rate us on Apple Podcasts to help boost us and sneakily chuck in a question like Velda did. And this is her question. Does it annoy you as much as it does me when an interviewee responds to your question with, that's a great question? This seems to be happening more and more often and I can't decide if it's the implied condescension of the banality that offends me most. It reminds me of Have a Nice Day, which was ubiquitous a decade ago. Are you kidding? Does it annoy me? I love it when they say that's a great question because I think, oh, that's a great question. I'm amazing. <laughs> I love praise. <laughs> um, no, I, I get what you're I get what you're saying because sometimes, uh, in fact, I think I've done an interview with a cabinet minister who said that about five times. In that case, I knew they didn't mean it. And yes, I can hear it's very annoying and very grating and it's just a device probably while they gather their thoughts. Um, But, you know, I I have to confess, and it is the ego within, that sometimes I do quite like it when they say that's a great question. PK, come on, own up. (laughs) When it's a minister, I don't because I always think, ah, yeah, media training 101, you're, you're trying to, yeah. you know, sort of also look like you're being nice to me and, oh, you're trying to, you know. As if. Oh, you're trying to trick me. You're trying to trick me. Uh, but if it's a, just a genuine, I call them civilians, a um, nice person who's an expert on something or, or, you know, has experienced something and they say it, I, I do, yeah, I think, thank you. <laughs> and I think it is genuine. I don't think often those people have been media trained, but I, I think I think Velder is asking about politicians and I do think it is a device, Velder, so you're right. I don't know if it's quite as bad as have a nice day. I suppose it's better than when they're really mean or rude. Uh, it's a better device than being mean or rude. So I'll My give them favourite some credit. device is with respect, Fran. I like I use that back to them. I use well. that back too. <laughs> with respect or I don't mean to be impolite, which is essentially I admit me admitting I'm probably being a little impolite. Don't mean to be impolite. But, but I guess what I we're saying impolite. is we all have devices, yeah? 
Yeah. Uh, sometimes I think we do it in real life too, don't we? We don't mean to sound rude. So we're owning that it may sound rude. And then we go ahead and are occasionally rude. Uh, that's mm. life. Anyway, Velda, you're our hero. Thank you for the five-star review. And of course, people can do it doing that or using social media. The hashtag is The Party Room. You can email us as well. There's heaps of ways you can ask us questions. Yes, please do. Enough from us for this week anyway. Rate, review, subscribe. See you, friend. See you, PK. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.